Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Right now, we're listening to a track called Dream Forger off the first album by Techno Animal. This is a project by Justin Broderick, who did an exchange a few weeks ago, and Kevin Martin, who we're happy to have as our guest this week. These days, Martin is best known as The Bug, but his early years in London saw him becoming emblematic of the crossover between supposedly disparate cultures like free jazz, metal, and sound system music. Martin was one of these figures that showed that these sounds share a common energy, and that understanding is crucial to the direction his music took in later years. We were here mostly to talk about London Zoo, which was the album that cemented his relationship with dance music, but we ended up focusing mainly on the years leading up to that point to get a sense of the mentality and personality behind the music he makes today. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with the bug is up next. On paper, it's pretty extraordinary. You know, you leave Weymouth as a young man, arrive in London, and within a pretty short period of time, you're working with all these people who are like quite significant figures. What was your impression of the of the city when you first arrived way back when? London was my city of dreams, really, because I grew up next to grass and beach. You know, Weymouth is like a a Brighton in miniature. I was desperate to get get out of there. You know, it's great for my mum and old people, but I I, I needed to fulfil my my artistic uh, cravings. In my in my heart and soul, I knew that music was what I needed. You know, part therapy, part escape, part parallel universe, and I just knew I couldn't achieve that to the degree I, I, I wanted to and needed to in Weymouth. You know, it's a small town, you know. Even to go and see shows at that time was difficult because you had to... It was quite an, an adventure to go to the nearest big cities, which would be Bristol or Bournemouth, I, I guess, to the north and east. Um, so for me, London offered dream fulfilment. 
you know, really it was, and it was, it was fantasy world for me when I first moved to London. I thought it would be easy. You move to London, you get shows, you know, you, you play, <laughs> you know, just totally naive, naive beyond, you know, and the harsh reality hit quick, you know, you, you realize, I realized very soon that I had to pay to play, really. You know, I was in a band. I, I moved with members of my band from Weymouth and we were practicing in a garage in the back of the, the house that we were renting and having rocks thrown at us by local kids because they hated the noise when we were practicing. And um, it was just, how do you get shows? How, how does it all work? I went from knowing absolute, I came to London knowing zero, apart from being a complete music fanatic and, and desperate to express myself through sound, you know, and through my voice at that time, ironically, because subsequently I, I hate my voice and, and very happy to have stopped doing vocals, you know, but I needed that, that primal scream therapy of screaming into a microphone extremely emotionally <laughs> you know and London was I felt my passport to to freedom actually but the reality was it was probably more like a prison <laughs> moving to a pleasure prison you know and that became more and more apparent the longer I lived there really but certainly it was an eye-opener moving to London you know it's it was hard to get shows not nigh on impossible really you know and if you did, you'd be playing when doors open, when there's no one there. You wouldn't get any fees at all. You wouldn't get sound check. It was starting very much from scratch, you know. And I, 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 having learned that it was impossible to get shows with zero contacts, not knowing the city, not knowing any friends who were in the industry, having no possible path to, to getting what I needed, which was a way of getting shows, to express myself or to release music or find how to release or record because my experience was so limited at recording as well on home studios in, in Weymouth. Um, me and the guy I moved up with, who was a, a mentor of mine, actually, he was a bit older than me, a guy called Nigel Armstrong, had moved to London with a vocal PA that we'd somehow scrambled the money together for a crappy H&H vocal PA. And... We were like, well, fuck it. If we can't get uh, shows, let's try and do it ourselves. And I can't remember how I discovered it exactly, but I, I subsequently found a back room of a pub in Brixton. Uh, the pub was called the Canterbury Arms, which I think someone said's demolished now. It's been demolished for a while, I think. But um, it was ironic because it was right behind Br Brixton Police Station. And the back room was a carpeted, chandeliered, really old school pub uh, atmosphere you know it looked like it'd been built in the 50s probably and every friday night myself and nigel would put on a show there and i was pretty naive you know i wasn't i didn't expect money from this all i wanted to do was have it as a rehearsal space and we were just looking in magazines and papers or in godflesh's case on their record sleeve, there was a phone number for Justin and Benny, and I just called them off pat and said, hey, we've got this club night, <laughs> totally naively. Uh, I can't guarantee you any money, um, but you can take all the money that comes in. I'm not going to take a penny. And that was the case, you know. And in fact, I remember when Mickey Harris, I invited Extreme Noise Terror to play, and Mickey Harris offering me money back because they'd never been paid so much money. And uh, he couldn't believe that I was just giving them the whole door, you know. 
but I was really idealistic. I, th I, I having been in shit situations with bands, uh, I thought it was cool to just pay every single penny to the, the headline artist who had done the show out of good grace and, 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 and hope that they'd have a good time, you know? So it was, um, it was bizarre because the club started with very few people. I mean, I gave Godflesh their first ever show, you know, um, and they played to maybe 30 or 40 people, you know, on a carpeted venue through a vocal sound system. And they were stunning, you know? Um, and I remember we booked Pulp at the time, and this was before Pulp were known, and there was maybe 20 people to that, you know? But it went from the first year of tiresome scrabbling to get anyone in there and not knowing what the hell we were doing in terms of advertising or promotion really just standing giving flyers out in the middle of Brixton stupidly you know like as if some of these names would mean to anything to, to hardly anyone walking past to suddenly being in the right place at the right time you know whereby Napalm Death suddenly Q magazine, I think it was, sent photographers and journalists to a Napalm Death headline show I put on there. And at this time, this was just before that scene really exploded, you know, um, and Q did this massive photo spread. And from that point on, everything changed, you know. Suddenly, I, it was full. I, I got bands like Loop uh, to come down and play. Um, it, was, it was basically a mixture of noise noise rock, experimental music, and anarcho-punk music, you know. So the ironic thing and the really funny thing is on the other side of the bar, you get all these off-duty coppers having their drinks, and in our side, it'd just be dregs, drug dregs, m musical freaks, uh, just losing their shit to the weirdest, most antagonistic, fucked-up music, you know. Um, so that's, that's, that's how I really got going in London. Sounds like you couldn't make up that context these days, right? It just sounds like something out of a fantasy land if you're, like, you know, born uh, 20 years ago in London or something, right? It's a dream for me looking back. It's a, it's a mad dream. I mean, music is generally for me. The, the, my, my path through it is, is still fantasy-based, you know, it's in a way. And that's the good and the bad thing about it, you know, because you realise when you're in an industry, there's so much pressure and compromise thrown at you it can be difficult for many people to keep their their fires burning and to keep their passion for what they do it's very easy to become jaded or give up as, as I've known many people to do but I don't really have any choice I don't have uh, rich parents I don't have a highly educated background I don't have a fire escape for me it's music or nothing you know and it always has been so it's it's been that continuous desperation for expression and fear of not being able to do anything else <laughs> really just just for the timeline's sake when did you start doing these events in brixton Jeez, and I'm not being evasive. I, I'm just shit with dates, but because um, I know pathological started in '89. Yeah, it would have been the same time because a lot of the contacts I made through the club night ended up on that compilation. So did you have Coil down there as well? No, 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 no. I didn't have Coil there, but I went to meet them, and that was bizarre. You know, I mean, I was a huge Throbbing Gristle fan. You know, so so I knew well, I, and I bought Coil's first album and was a big fan. But to go and meet them, I was terrified, you know, because their reputation. I mean, the, you know what I mean? Scatology, 
horse rotavator, you know, some of the titles. And I, I didn't know what to expect, but they were actually sweet as pie. And they couldn't believe that I was inviting them on a compilation with Napalm Death because they love Napalm Death and they love thrash metal. <laughs> and they were like, wow, yeah, amazing. You know, we'd, we'd love to, to, to be on there. You know, no one ever asks us. We always get asked to be on these boring, arty compilations. But yeah, this, this is totally different. So yeah, count us in. And ironically, later on, I, I invited them to be on a dub compilation, which again, they were over the moon because they said, we love dub. We're, we're huge fans of King Tubby and, and Lee Perry. But again, we never get, no one makes the connection. You've made a connection that people normally don't don't see, but dub's a massive inspiration on us. So they, they're great. They were great people, man. And it was, it was a, a joy to be able to work with them. It's interesting you said that, um, see the connections that, that others are missing. So pathological started with this compilation which we've been talking about with coil uh godflesh napalm death and stuff like that but pretty soon afterwards you're putting out you know i just want to pick out a few examples like you put out a record by peter and casper brotsman if anyone listening hasn't heard of um these guys casper is the son of peter he's a guitarist peter brotsman is a tenor player who uh basically turned it the saxophone into like a an assault weapon or something although he, he can play really really sensitively as well he's um i reckon you should check out a record called machine gun which basically sums up uh his, his approach at the time but anyway so th- this is like um really extreme free jazz and you're coming from a you know i'm not the best with the john genre indicators of like grindcore or um wh- whatever you'd call it like the name doesn't matter but I just want to know, like, you're doing these sorts of bands at this event. How do you, like, sidestep into putting out, like, a Brotsman record? Well, first, I'm impressed you know the Brotsmans because very few people are aware of, of that area in dance music, that's for sure. So it's amazing that you, you uh, name-check them. Well, you only have to read Wire, like, one time, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Peter Brotsman's, like, the, the patron saint of The Wire, yeah. Um, you know, what you've got to remember is my band... The whole focus of what I was trying to do was to mix uh, noise rock and free jazz, you know, because my first instrument that I'd learned was a saxophone, you know. So for me, that's not such a leap of difference. You know, free jazz has the same energy for me that punk music did or dancehall does or uh, hip hop did when it first started. You know, it's 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 a music of resistance. It's a music uh, 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 that questions what music actually is structurally and and a gale force wind of invention, you know, and, and as far as I'm concerned all the musics that mean most to me are musics that are sort of revolutionary in a way and, and have a context and have this this fire music ingredient you know and and working with peter and casper was a dream come true when i approached them they weren't talking to each other they hadn't talked for years actually and they hadn't got on i'm not sure what the history of that was um but they were quite surprised that anyone had suggested it but it, for me, it made absolute sense. I, I, I was a fan of both separately. Casper Brotsman, for anyone not versed in, in what he did, he played music like he's a virtuoso guitarist, but his main inspiration is Jimi Hendrix. And I've got to say, I hated Jimi Hendrix and guitars generally for years because my mum used to torture me by playing the worst rock music continuously through speakers piped to every room of our house, you know. So 
guitar music was the enemy for many, many years, you know, which ex actually explains a lot about my, my back catalogue anyway, I think. But I ended up loving Casper Brotsman's sound because he stripped the blues away. He got rid of the solos. He reduced Hendrix just to to slabs of metallic riff, you know. And I don't mean metallic like heavy metal. I just mean it sounds like the material. It just sounds like this huge chunk of nastiness, you know. And Peter Brotsman, as you referred to with Machine Gun, that's just war music to me, you know. That's just, just basically, like you said, it's a full-on, full-frontal attack on the senses, you know. And it's soul music of the most intense kind, you know. And I, I think that... Uh, being able to bring them together again was another dream come true. You know, I'm a dreamer. Like some people may listen to my music and think that it's it's like aggressive or, or anti. It's it's my music is absolutely linked to my idealism. You know, and and my my passion for sound and music as being uh, something that makes a difference. Music changed my life. It's not very fashionable to talk in those terms now, because so much music is just a, an accessory to people's lifestyles, or music is just now product. You know, for me, it it, it was a, a a passport to. Um, question everything and to understand everything a lot of my knowledge was gained through music interviews you know i, I would get turned on to uh, incredible literature um through interviews with genesis p orridge or nick cave you know um i i dropped out of college very soon when i discovered drugs and girls you know and for me it was like um formal education never grabbed me you know, it never it never inspired me. It's a pity that the best tutors I ever had were at the college I dropped out from, you know, because there was a couple of tutors. I was studying uh, sociology and philosophy, and um, those tutors were the most amazing tutors I'd ever come across because they actually nurtured enthusiasm for, for knowledge as opposed to the programming that goes on generally in schools, you know. So for me, my, my education came sort of, stupidly <laughs> through music i became an avid reader you know and a complete literature nerd but that was coming through reading music press my lifeline from weymouth which was a wilderness to grow up in was john peel's radio shows on one hand and bieber kopf writing for the wire on the other hand or or various journalists writing for enemy or melody maker who were introducing me to worlds that that spoke to me, you know. I uh, growing up in a troubled family background, uh, growing up in a, a town which I have to say, Weymouth is the most violent place I've ever experienced. You know, London, of course. When violence happens in London, it's deadly and sporadic. In in Weymouth, <laughs> there was violence all the time because it was a small town surrounded by an army base, a navy base. Uh, and an air force base and these lunatics would come in every weekend and most nights realize when they were drunk there wasn't enough women in town so what do they do they take the violence out on local freaky looking people like me and just i got mashed up you know beaten up a few times thrown through a window by these psychopaths you know so for me it's like i i needed some ways to explain the craziness of the world you know and and, and seeing my father abuse me and my mum on a regular basis physically it was just like none of it I didn't none of it made sense to me and somehow reading about other people's traumas and 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 uh, needs to make music to offer a, an escape from brutal reality 
is what led me to to, to investigate a lot of the genres and areas I, I, I investigated. The writing music connection one is a perhaps a jumping off point for you also did a Lydia Lunch record, mm, which is I, I haven't been able to hear it online, but it's it's um, listed as spoken word on on Discogs. Is it just like it's that? Her, it's that? It's like just her, it's her. Yeah, it's her doing a spoken word performance called "Conspiracy of Women." Cow. Um, yeah, the cover art's really good on that one as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, n- on the version, I think it was reissued. You may have seen the reissue and the reissue. No, no, no. The, ri- the original oh, you saw one the original. Okay. With, the, with the black and it says cow. Yeah, that's right. Oh, then, okay. oh, you like that? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. No, cool, the, cool. the reissue one's just like. Okay, I just thought some people may prefer the, the, the reissue. Yeah. Okay, no, no, no that's, that's interesting that you say that. But is that another situation where you're just like hitting up these people yeah. cold sort of thing? Yeah. Look. For instance, okay, I met the editor, now editor of The Wire, I think he's the editor, Chris Bond, Bieberkopf, by literally knocking on his front door at about eight o'clock at night, <laughs> holding a record, that I ju- the pathological compilation, and just saying, look, I've been a big fan of your writing, here's something I, you might like that I've put on my label. And he <laughs> crazily, very kindly welcomed me into his house to talk, you know, and the same with John Peel, you know, literally waiting outside the BBC until he arrived, thinking he must arrive for his radio show and handing him a record. And he played it the same night. You know, it's like I said, it's naivety and fantasy combined. And I don't mean Dungeons and Dragons fantasy. I mean, it's a dream, making dreams real. You know, Coyle were believers uh, in a sort of Crowleyan philosophy of of willpower and how to fulfill your dream fantasies i believe in it too you know i'm no fucking hippie but i i believe that it's important to focus your energies on on what it is you 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 require in life and how you can exist in life you know and what it is that can make this life bearable <laughs> you know you go on so many tangents i was about to bring up bring up like england sit in reverse and talk yeah. about all that shit and stuff yeah, but- yeah. Um, there was only one more um, little thing that I wanted to pick out from this period, which was I saw on the liner notes for one of the early God records that Eddie Prevost was credited for percussion. Yeah, Eddie Prevo from AMM. Was, Sorry, uh, I, I've pronounced two two legendary people's names incorrectly so no, far in no, this interview. No, <laughs> no they, they wouldn't, Eddie wouldn't give a fuck. Um, yeah, Eddie Prevo. I invite, basically, God had two phases. It had its early phase, which is my apprenticeship in London, which only the bass player I invited to the next phase. Nigel, who who I told you I, I moved to London with, it proved too much for him, London. He ended up moving back to Dorset, I believe, because um, it was a struggle. You know, also the other members of my original that had moved to London with me moved back even sooner, you know. We was, we would generally support bands like the Butthole Surfers or Killdozer and be a token London noise band to open up for the latest American thing that would fly in and get hyped up. And it was cool, but I think the sound we were playing at that time was too derivative of that that music. And I knew it wasn't going further enough. It wasn't incorporating enough of the influences that I, I felt I wanted to. And it, it wasn't giving me enough freedom of movement sonically and, and thematically or conceptually. And I just wanted to work with more players that, that were involved in jazz and, and improvised music because I felt that songs already were feeling the song structures were feeling as if they were... Uh, there's a constraint of song structure whereby, at that time, I wasn't interested in song structure. Like That was one of the things that me and Justin bonded on when we used to hang out very early on. 
we were both looking for avenues that were anti-song, you know, and that may sound a bit artsy or, or bullshitty to people, but all it means is what's possible that isn't you haven't heard before. Why why revolve around making music that is follows conservative structural patterns? What else is out there? So it would lead me into this into wire world <laughs> actually you know the wire was this tome of of knowledge for me you know so i would discover um contemporary classical composers i would discover soundtrack composers i would discover uh global music forms anything that that made my jaw hit the floor you know and, and think wow sonically what the hell is this about you know was was for me a very high uh goal you know so I'd seen AMM, Eddie Prevost's band, play uh, uh, shows in, in, in and around London and been completely blown away. I mean, for anyone that doesn't know AMM, they started, I think, at the same time as Pink Floyd. He told me that they used to support Pink Floyd at the Roundhouse and stuff. But their music is nearly silent it, and, it, and, it, and it, it has peaks and troughs. And it, it, you question what music is after being to one of their shows, you know? It, it turns your all, all your all regular understandings in music upside down because it's impressionistic more than, 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 than in your face. And Eddie, again, like everything else we've discussed thus far, I just really walked up to him and said, look, I'd love to involve you in this project I'm doing. Um, would you like to be involved? And I'm still shocked to this day he agreed to do it because honestly, man, we were loud, you know, and and, and they were, and they generally weren't, you know, and, and I think he appreciated, I know he did because he told me and I ended up inviting him to work with Pete Kemba in uh, Sonic Boom in EAR and he joined us there too, you know. He's an incredible guy, you know, he's, he's an incredible musician, theorist and open-minded. That's the most important thing for me with most people I work with, you know. You, we talked earlier about Justin Broderick, for instance, you know, what Justin and I share is this huge appetite and thirst for the future in music, you know, and, and, and how to con use music to, to explore your own personality and just, just how you can express ideas that haven't been expressed elsewhere, you know, freshness through sound, you know, in, in a way, I guess. And, and Eddie Prevo still has that. And you met, like I said, he was playing music in the late 60s. And for him to come into this racket of noise and, and bass, I mean, the, again, for those people that don't know my first band, uh, God, there was that second phase where it was really about free jazz and noise rock and a fusion of the two. There was three bass players. There was two uh, electric bass players and one double bass player that I'd invited into the band and two drummers and then Eddie Prevo on percussion. You know, ended up the last show we did, I think there was something like 13 people on stage. Uh, there was African percussionists from Ghana as well. So for me, the bass thing isn't a new thing. It's not a, like... I have to laugh at people talking about bass music as if that's a revelation generally, you know, as if that's a, a philosophy in itself. Yeah, I'm addicted to bass. Yeah, I'm addicted to volume. But I was doing that before it became a, a supposed genre of bass music, whatever the fuck that is. You know, it's, it's, it's about the physicality of sound. 
You know, uh, again, being tangential, moving from Eddie Prevo to sound system, sound clashes. When I first moved to London, within the first six months, I saw my first sound clash, reggae sound clash between Irish and Steppers and the Disciples. And that really had massive impact on me, you know. It had reminded me of a Swan show I'd seen by chance before I'd moved to London. When I just came to London on a holiday, I, I happened to see Swans play the ICA knowing nothing about them before, just going on a time-out review that made it sound interesting, you know, and being completely floored by by the, the sheer visceral avalanche of sound and space, you know, between the notes. And when I went to the Sound Clash in a tiny warehouse in the East End of London, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'd heard the expression Sound Clash. Yeah, I'm there. You know, Sound Clash sounds amazing. You know, war of reggae sound systems sounds brilliant, you know. So I went there and it literally was that. It's a tiny room, two sound systems on either side of the room, audience trapped in the middle. These guys at war with each other sonically, playing three song, three versions of each song back and forth, back and forth, louder and louder. Each version of each song getting more and more psychedelic and tripped out. So the third version was always the mental version, you know, and just having a light bulb above each other's mixing desk. And just like, for me, it's just like, what the hell? You know, it's just the feeling of bass. I could feel my larynx being squashed at the back of my, my head, you know. I could, my, my, my ears were flapping. But I knew I needed it again. You know, I knew it wasn't particularly healthy or, or it wasn't advisable. But what it had that Swans didn't have, I guess, was a use of song structure and, uh, and, and melody, albeit mashed up and getting more mashed with each subsequent song. So it had elements of things that the Swans' physical experience didn't really. So I don't know how we, we got from Eddie Prevo to there. But that's the whole point, right? So that these things aren't as far away as they might seem. Yeah, on paper. exactly. Yeah, exactly. AMM Thank could get, also get pretty loud, right? Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Also, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think um, Oren and Barchi's label Black Truffle just put out, uh, maybe last year reissued AMM Music. I think it's called. Okay, which is yeah, another yeah, it was an amazing album. Another yeah, yeah. recommendation. That was the first thing I ever heard. Yeah, in, yeah. insanity. You mentioned Justin there, obviously like a really key figure. We were talking before about he did it in exchange recently as well. And um, when I was personally lis- listening to it and stuff like that, yeah, his, his passion was very um, touching or something like that. For biography's sake, I wonder if it, he had that impression when, when you first met him. He's never changed. He's, he's the same now as he was then. He's still gushes enthusiasm. And again, he's another person that people might expect to be mean and moody. You know, he's not that at all. He's, he's, he's just a, a, a ball of enthusiasm, you know, and, and we share that. You know, for me, he's like a brother. He's like my little brother, really. But he was teaching me so much, you know, like all I had when I started making music was a saxophone and some effects pedals. You know, he through deals with with uh, Columbia when they licensed earache releases for the States had some studio. You know, he had a mixing desk and he had a sampler and and stuff like that. You know, and I'd had small home studio setups in Weymouth, but in London, I had nothing. So my my sampler was a CD player with uh, A to B starting points 
Um, so I would have all these CDs because I was working as a journalist at the time too. Uh, so I'd be getting sent a lot of music and I just sample the shit out of it, you know, but tiny segments, like two seconds segments and loop it up on the CD player and then have to write down the loop points and bring the CDs to Justin to sample up, which became the first Techno Animal album, you know, and just sitting behind him being a gobshite and watching what he was doing inspired me to know that I really wanted to to work more and more with studio stuff. I'd been invited by some Swiss jazz guy uh, who was a, in an incredible band called 1617, oh, right, yeah. who... Uh, when I formed God, I was ignorant enough to think we were the only per people that had ever thought of mixing free jazz and noise rock, you know? Then someone said, have you heard 1617? Who it turned out had been doing it five, ten years before, you know? And it's incredible what they were doing. And as... Uh, chance has it i invited a swiss piano player to play on the first god album and he then uh invited me to produce his album because uh he he felt what i'd done was impressive when i was bluffing it you know to be honest that first god album john zorn did the primary uh production on it um and we were doing it at bill laswell's studio and laswell had incredible engineers so all i was doing was sitting at the back saying change levels you know because i was still learning what a studio was really and what it was capable of you know and then this piano player peter peter kraut i think his name was uh, invited me to produce his band album and i just remember like a i was broke b i'd never produced properly anything in my life i just being like I say someone at the back of a room saying can you turn the level of this up a bit or turn that down a bit or send the odd the odd statement so I had to bluff it and I, I wasn't going to give up the opportunity it was like okay I'm going to try this shit and I remember literally going to engineers that I'd worked with before going to Switzerland to produce this album uh, and asking their advice and right taking notes of what the most important things like a crash course in studio production you know bluffed you know and this guy alex was um playing saxophone from 1617 alex boost on this swiss band's album so i got to meet alex and we got on super well and again he seemed to like <laughs> whatever it was i was doing for that album and he then Im invited me to produce his album you know which was like an honor because i was blown away by him as a musician and the sound of his band and then it was just working at his studio particularly and having worked at justin's studio that I just knew I, I needed to be, there's, a, there's a, an alchemical process for me of working with sound in a studio, you know. It's part spaceship, part science experiment, part drug replacement. Uh, it, it, it's just the potential for what you can do with sound in a studio is limitless. And for me, I just fell in love with the studio as an environment and the, the gear therein and how you can turn songs and music upside down inside out back to front stretch it squeeze it etc mutate it into any form that your imagination will allow you know so for me it was working with people like justin working with alex i just knew i had to work more in the studio and that's ultimately around the time i fell out of love with working with a band you know uh rehearsals half the time back people in the band wouldn't be that committed a lot of the jazz players were so great at what they were doing technically they didn't really give a fuck about the aesthetic it was just another gig for them and 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 i i get 
and for sure there was amazing players in God, which I, I still think were incredible to work with. But at the same time, I just I just fell out of love with being in a band. The, the last show by God, uh, when I finally decided to jack it, I've talked about it before, but it, it was um, at the garage in London, and I'd invited Graham Sutton. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he was part of um, Bark Psychosis, and then I think it was under the name Boymerang. He recorded for Metalheads. He ended up doing Jungle for Metalheads. So he went from indie rock to recording for Goldie and made it seem easy. And his, he and I were, were good friends at that time. And he, um, he was experimenting with Jungle, you know, in the same way that Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine was the first person that introduced me to Jungle, ironically. Um, it, it sounds crazy because... The industry and media are so keen to compartmentalise and box every genre up separately. But it's quite natural when you live in London. You know, that's one of the things I miss about London in Berlin is that, that things morph and, and you, you, you float between scenes, really, you know, and, and the, 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 the influence of counter genres are there all the time. So basically, I invited Graham to put his proto-jungle act together uh, and I invited the disciples to bring their sound system, their reggae sound system, and with my band in the middle. And actually what happened, God, in the middle? And what happened was, A, there was loads of complaints at the sound check from Neighbours at volume. B, amps were blowing up for my band at the sound check. Then Graham Sutton's band played and fans of God were throwing bottles at them because they were too dancey, I guess. And then after we played... Uh, most of the audience left virtually the whole audience left before Disciples even started playing tunes or within the first two tunes they played so it was basically me and the half of the, the my band God just getting lost in their, their reggae sound system but at the end I just felt totally depressed and demoralised about the whole event it's like if it, it was a lot of questions. I'd already thought, well, the Disciples are doing everything and Iration Steppers were doing everything I wanted to do with sound without and more actually without compromise and and they were they were stretching sound in in ways that I wanted to do with a band but I felt that there was constraints within a band and I don't mean personally I mean literally uh, sonically you know so for me after that it was like fuck fuck being in a band you know and I, I say in a band like a, a gigging normal band obviously it was around the same period where Justin and I were starting to work more with, with Techno Animal, um, which is a band or was a band and has now been reborn as Zonal. But in a way, it was like hanging out with your best mate and just loving making, fucking with sound, basically, and, and, and seeing how, how far we could push and pull sound and test speakers. I wanted to pick out one track, actually, from... Um that first techno animal record you know you said it yourself however many minutes ago but that you know your music's not all about like aggression and bass weight and all that stuff like that the track's called uh what is the dream it? forger dream forger <laughs> i knew you were gonna <laughs> say fucking that. amazing man uh, like um so I, I, got, I gotta get the cd or the or the record or whatever format it's on because there's no like band camp for this path pathological yeah. stuff right yeah, yeah, yeah but i wanted to use that example as a question of like you sort of answered it before with the taking samples of CDs to Justin and stuff like that. But, yeah, so basically it's like there's a sax line, it repeats, there's some delay on it, a complimentary sax line comes in, just builds in this really, like, honestly beautiful piece. I'm just wondering whether you're putting this stuff together in kind of like a 
performative uh, like take, almost like an electronic version of a band, or is this more very like because you know early samplers must have been like a total ball like to work with. Was it this kind of like laborious stitching things together, or did you have a workflow where it was more like performative? No, it wasn't about performance because uh, at that time with that album in particular, we weren't even thinking about performing. Again, it was just seeing how we can fuck with effects and 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 falling in love with Eventide uh, effects units, H3000s. Mm. Um, we just wanted to make hallucinatory psychedelic sound, you know, or supremely brutal sound. We wanted the two extremes, you know. What Still to this day, the, the music that bores me is all the middle mass, middle of the road shit. Uh, what I love is music that has either great beauty or great intensity and dirt on the other side, you know. And with that track in particular, I can remember where the sample came from, but I'm not going to say where it well, came from. Well, I assume from. it might have been you on saxophone, <laughs> No, actually. a lot of people did, and I very ungenerously didn't admit it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't me playing sax. I wish it was, you know. But um, that that track, for me, what's interesting about it is when I heard William Bozinski, it echoed exactly what we would been trying to do, which is... And I've been thinking about it a lot because I'm working on some music at the moment for collaboration with, with a person from a very different area. Uh, which is in, in that style, you know, and and it's 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 like dream cycles when you listen to that. It's it's like like I said, it's like audio hallucinations when you hear what what the effects add to 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 the the original source material. It almost gets to the point where the original source material loses a lot of the significance, and what you you drift to is is the effects chain of 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 wall of mirrored. Eff- delays and echoes and 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 um the sensory magic of reverbs you know um so for me and for justin with that track it's very much about being hypnotized by sound you know and and that's what we were attempting really a lot like the irony is (laughs) i can't remember if justin talked about this in his interview but we we came to this we would come to know if something worked because he would smoke a lot of weed and drink a lot and i would i never touched drugs and haven't done for many many years and i'd already given up at that point drugs or drink you know so we knew if it both hit us in the same way it would hit the mark you know and basically it was to have that the irony is one of my reasons for giving up drugs and drink was because I felt there must be other ways to get the same shit that wasn't damaging me as much, you know? And the best music hits me like the best drugs, <laughs> you know, and still does, you know? It has that that uh, symbiotic impact, you know? And for me, that's what that track does. It's a, it's funny. I knew, somehow I knew you were going to say that track because it, it, there's a sort of magic in it that is very much down to the, the guy that played the original line, of course, but we just tried to amplify his magic. And you kind of referred to this when you were talking about Earache getting a Columbia publishing deal. So the second Techno Animal album re-entry was on Virgin, mm. which is unusual in hindsight considering it's a double CD record where all the tracks are mostly between 10 and 20 minutes. It's like post-rave psychosis dub. It just seems crazy that major labels 
would be getting behind something like this. Can you just talk it about was a like freak. the? No, it was a total freak. There was a guy when God re- released our album uh, Possession through a, a Virgin subsidiary, um, and the guy that was the assistant of the guy that ran that label Venture, um, Simon Hopkins, ended up getting a job at Catalog, I think they call it at labels. And he was putting together compilations. I think he did one for David Toop first before ours. And he was just a fan. He would come to God shows and, and, and wax lyrical, but he was like an encyclopedia of knowledge. And uh, Simon Simon was like really deeply into uh, the most eclectic musics possible, you know. And I just winged it again. I was just desperate for money. I couldn't pay my rent at the time. Same reason I started journalism, you know, my, my girlfriend at that time was paying the bills and I had no money, you know, and, and I just winged it then. I said to Chris Bond at the time for The Wire, look, I've never written in my life, but I'd like to do an interview with Godflesh for The Wire. <laughs> Another time you got to remember The Wire wasn't what it is now. It was strictly classical and jazz with a, the very odd freaky co- column by Chris, you know, and it, it was the same motivation. You know, that that when I approached Virgin about doing Techno Animal, we just knew there was money to, to get from them. You know, it's just like we knew they were given money to Paul Schutz and to David Toop. And I knew it was via Simon. So I just tapped Simon and said, look, man, we this is the Techno Animal stuff we've done before. This is what we're planning. We want to invite John Hassel to play trumpet on it, which we did. And we want it to have two sides. We want one side disc to be beat orientated because me and Justin at that time had become really enamored by Jeff Mills' early shows in Britain or um, the very first Plastic Man shows we'd seen. You know, we I wasn't a raver. I was the opposite. I didn't like ravers. I just thought they were fucking hippies, like new, like a new phase of hippie, you know. Uh, but some of the craziness of those shows, like seeing Je- Jeff Mills play sets at maybe four, generally four or five in the morning to roomfuls of people mashed up on drugs, and I wasn't. But hearing how fucked up his music was and how intense and how polyrhythmic it was and just how combative it was and crazy was mind-blowing to me, you know. Um, I wasn't a techno head either. Generally, uh, Justin was the guy that was more into techno than me. But Underground Resistance, Jeff Mills, the first Plastic Man stuff uh, rung rung clear with me you know it it felt like it was all done for the right reason it felt like science fiction and rawness and 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 a sort of punk energy again really and mentality you know and 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 just a, a thirst for experimentation and finding a future vocabulary for sound you know so when we went to virgin it was like look we want to do something that's inspired by crazy acidic machines uh, and on the other side, we want to do an, a, a disc that's just imaginary soundtracks, you know. We'd always, always been in love with, with a lot of soundtrack music. Um, and for us, it was like we knew that the chances were minimal of us ever getting the... Things, again, have changed quite a lot now. It's much more possible now. But at that time, we knew it would be virtually impossible for us to do them. So we were like, fuck it. If we can't get them, we'll do it ourselves. You know, it's, it's that DIY ethic that, again, has followed me th- through through time, you know. When I got into music, it was through post-punk music and labels like the Crass label or Throbbing Gristle's label, you know. It was do it yourself because no other fucker's going to do it for you, you know. And it, it's like, in order to do things with other people, there's compromise involved. Why do you want to make compromise, particularly for your art, you know? So, 
try it yourself see what's possible think people can only say no you know bang on the door and see what happens and that's what i did with virgin and that's how the the techno animal album ha- mm. happened on virgin just uh, one more justin relevant question you um did a drum and bass record together as white viper oh shit you did do your research yeah. <laughs> oh i know you did okay okay but, yeah. um man discogs just the best yeah, thing ever. yeah yeah yeah, yeah but true, uh true. yeah he said in his exchange that um he was really into drum and bass but um he got he got sick of it because djs were basically like the gatekeepers where like um something wouldn't get put out if it wasn't like mixed down in a way that the dj wanted has to be able to stand up next to whatever he's mixing out of or whatever um and i was just wondering whether were you into drum and bass at the time or was this kind of like you were just working with justin and oh no 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 look Generally, the most genres, I, I feel there's not, like, it's true of virtually every genre, actually. I find it hard with trance, but <laughs> virtually every other genre. Man, there's, there's some good the, trance. The, there's I like, know, people. With breaks in it? Yeah, I know. Well. People tell yeah. me that. People tell me that. But 95% of every genre is shit, and there's 5% hardcore that's wicked in every genre some genres i prefer to others so i'll investigate every genre and for me drum and bass i mean fuck of course i was gonna like it you know because there's levels and layers of everything particularly on the first um waves of of jungle you know because you just never heard anything like it like i told you kevin shields was the first person to really play me um uh, jungle you know and i and I was blown away, you know, because it, it, it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. And, and that a lot of the music that I cherish most, quite often, has been music that when I first heard it, I just didn't have a fucking clue what I was listening to. And just, it disorientated me to the max, you know, and, and that was the, the joy in it. It's like discovering a whole new world. And I think that Jungle, as was, um, definitely got me interested and I, I knew that there was a lot of influences of things that I loved in there whether it be dub whether it be hip-hop but I cherished Dillinger you know for me he was the dude that that really made me turn turn around and go whoa you know I remember me and Justin watching the, the Metalheads documentary where Dillinger's in the studio working on how, the crazy way he made his tracks and we were like wow you know and and at the same just after that Unusually, normally the second wave or the second generation of every genre starts to lose its shit. But both Justin and I became really enamoured by um, Bad Company's first releases or uh, Ram Trilogy's early shit or uh, Fotec stuff. Well, Fotec had been earlier, but we liked the, the sort of riff stuff, this heavy riff stuff that came through. And and we were big, big fans of um, Fotec's, um, I think it was called Special Forces, was it? He had that one-off label. It was a huge influence on us because it actually it was like basic channel done to to um, uh, jungle and drum and bass where the surface noise was as important as as the musical components on there and there was hardly anything on it, it was minimal it's moody as hell and it was I believe it was if I remember rightly and it's a long time ago uh, for me to remember but it was I believe it was Fotech and Digital together doing this stuff I think it was Special Forces under the name I'll, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll 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 it up. I made it to you yeah 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 but it was hugely influential on me and Justin you know that that, that sound and the, those records at that time so yeah no I was definitely he was more in to it and he what what justin does often like he's doing it right now with techno he wants to be able to make note perfect genre specific music you know like he'd done it with metal he did it with uh techno he did it with drum and bass i'm not that you know i like shit that just sounds mutant 
you know, and I, I, uh, away from a genre, you know. In a way, I'm, try I'm trying to create my own world through sound, whereas Justin is a craftsman, a higher form of craftsman than, than me even, because he can basically take genre and then fuck with it. He can, he, can, he can recreate a genre note by note skillfully and then move away from it. I just don't even bother with that first part. I just move away, you know, and uh, yeah. But drum and bass, going back to your original uh, question, yeah, drum and bass and jungle was a huge influence, you know. Uh, seeing DJ hype shows very early on, just as he started ganja was a big thing for me simon reynolds invited me to shows i was a big friend of kojo eshin and we used to go to to jungle raves you know so for me yeah, of course if it was inconceivable that you wouldn't feel the impact of jungle in london because it was blasting from everywhere from car stereos pirate radio stations in the end boutiques and actually suddenly what what killed it off for me a little bit was just it was too it was oversaturation you couldn't get away from jungle you know and it just lost its its initial impact you know and generally i'm drawn to more slower more intense shit you know and, and when fotek and uh, not fotek when bookham came through and as happens a lot with dance music for me where you get suddenly the the, the 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 term intelligent gets bandied around and it's like kiss of death for me for any genre you know it's it happens with with ambient music with with techno with with jungle and then i'm just like i'm out here you know and it's not because i'm a, th a thug or idiot it's just it becomes the, the intelligence that music is judged by is actually cliched for me. It's, it's like when, very often when dance music incorporates jazz as well, it's, it's a really superficial incorporation of jazz or intelligence that actually seems dumb to me in both sides. So I'm just out of there. We're inching forward through time sorry, here. Sorry, man. I, I, yeah, no, 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 no. Ass off, sorry. No, it's, it's a definitely Don't ever hesitate to just to say, shut up and no, just move no, no. on. You know, really. But it's like now I'm kind of like throwing in tangent. Okay, yeah, like, do it. Tangents um, are wicked. Because you did graphic design. I mean, the extent of which I know is as the pathological puppy. Yeah, that was me. And it's kind of like... um pre-internet collage based kind of like post rave steve stapleton or something like that oh, yeah. i never even thought of it in terms like that what it was was buggy g riphead who did all the graphics for uh, future sound of london well, i was just wondering like um where because would you have to source all these images y yourself yeah and i got i got taken to court for it with the first god second god album because i sourced images from a, a basement of a a medical department in a, a, a obscure London bookstore and I found these pictures of anatomical malformations and I ended up putting it on the front sleeve uh, scanning it and I, I thought at the time that the law was if you if you change it negatize it morph it in a strange way suddenly the copyright reverts but I found out to my pain that that's not the case and we got fined I, I got taken I, it was an out-of-court settlement that Big Cat my label at the time had to go through but yeah basically I was looking for images everywhere you know and like you said it was pre-internet so I'd be like rummaging around in in obscure bookstores and 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 flea markets looking for strange images to incorporate but like I said Buggy from Future Sound of London I didn't have a computer. I my all the artwork for the first Techno Animal album for the re-entry was done over his shoulder in the same way I was over Justin's shoulder. He taught me everything I knew about Photoshop. Um, 
and he was he was totally into that acidic crazy collage post rave collage and his whole visual style was was very symbolic at the time but i wanted to stay away from that i'd always been a huge fan of of movies and art anyway you know again learning mostly through music people one film director leading to another uh old sci-fi um and the same with art, just living in London, going to galleries all the time, you know. Like I said, London was my passport to artistic freedom, like whether it be going to the what was the Scala at the time when it was a cinema and you'd get like the craziest all-night Pasolini movie uh, events or David Cronenberg events, which I would never have been able to see in Weymouth. All this sounds so dinosaur now because of the, the, the age of the internet. But at the time, it was a big deal to be able to go and see Cronenberg films all night in a cinema, you know, and... and just, I mean, where can you yeah. do that now, actually, you know? Like, sure, at you home, might be able to... again, yeah. that's it. You know, you just... It's, everything's just separate. Yeah. You know, you just... You, you, we're all living in these sort of pleasure prisons now, uh, isolated, you know, and so be it, you know? All right, um... The bug kicks off at the tail end of the 90s. And, like, you can kind of see it's not like a necessarily a huge departure with what you've done before, but kind of like there's this new magic ingredient, which is the dancehall raga influence. And, again, similar sort of question. I'm just wondering where that germ cell came from. Like, where were you first exposed to it and thought, like, I'm going to incorporate this into what I do? Okay. <laughs> Man, honestly, I, I do feel bad because you're realizing how tangential I am. Actually, it wasn't the first bug. Th the first bug thing I actually did was. A, well, a I know the soundtrack one. Yeah, I, exactly. There was another interview where you said, like, oh, I that's don't really kind of an anomaly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. And I do feel it's an anomaly. But yeah, dancehall itself and the impact it had on me and why I wanted to, to go for it. I'd started as a reggae snob, you know. I, I never liked dancehall, to be honest. Like I said to you earlier, a lot of music I end up cherishing is stuff when I first hear it. I just don't know what it is, or it just presses the wrong buttons, and suddenly I get a, more and more obsessed and compelled to investigate, you know. I was living in northwest London, you know, uh, so my, my local hoods were Stonebridge Park, Harlesden, uh, Wembley, uh, Willesden, you know, and reggae central you know just like wall-to-wall -wall reggae stores in Harlesden, you know and i was basically a token white kid going into the shops being looked at like a complete freak waiting for the latest batch of seven inches to come in from jamaica and just standing there asking them to play seven inch after seven inch for me um and just getting my education in record stores in in Harlesden and in um uh, in Wembley, you know, and for me, I, I'd been involved in and around the breakcore scene. Uh, and DJ Scud, who you probably wouldn't know, I guess, um, who was a sort of alumni of digital hardcore and Alec Empire. Well, you had a record on digital hardcore recordings, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but Scud had recorded this breakcore track called Total Destruction. And it was basically noise with a, a dancehall a cappella. And I kept saying to him, because we were good friends at the time, man, you should just work with Jamaican MCs and do this shit live. It'd be destructive. You know, it'd be insane. And he kept making excuses why not to do it, you know. And, and the more I said it to him and the more he blanked it and blocked it, the more I just thought, actually, what the fuck? If he's not going to do it, I'll do it, you know. And 
it was a rhythm called Street Sweeper by Steely and Cleavy that really hooked me on dancehall, that rhythm particularly, because it's, it's odd as hell, it's militaristic, some of the vocals that were put down on it were incredible. That was the rhythm that got me into dancehall, particularly and primarily, but there were still a lot of elements in dancehall I wasn't, I wasn't relating to, whether it be the melodic elements or... or sampled components I just would never have done so my, my thing was okay I don't want to copy Jamaican music I don't want to copy dancehall but I can see that there's there's a real future shock impact in dancehall because it just sounds alien it sounds like from a different planet you know the same way when I first heard reggae at a very impressionable age of about 14 the first Prince I'd heard Bob Marley of course you know but I heard a Prince Farai track called Foggy Road which was literally like coming from a, another planet in some other universe for me because I it was I didn't know anything about the reference points you know but it was like intense you know the voice of fire eye was intense and it was the same with a lot of dancehall it was like fuck man what is this shit about but realizing that I wanted to do it on my through my roots you know so yeah overdriven dirty disgusting and i wanted to end parties you know i wanted to the the the, the, the razor x tracks i wanted to really literally be the, the 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 tunes that would blow up your system and just fuck off the people you know and 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 that was my my original original stamp that i wanted for the razor x stuff you know i, I think i uh, i called it killing sound or something uh I wanted it to be brutal as hell, you know, but at the same time with the first Bug album, Pressure, there was the, the working with Roger Robinson for half the album, which is the tracks that never really get spoken about. He and I still laugh about that because the ones that do get spoken about are the dancehall tracks, not the poetry tracks, you know. So the, there was a schism on that album anyway, but the tracks that, that, that I think were most successful and not I don't mean successful in terms of reception. I just mean for me artistically, with this 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 new this new vocabulary for dancehall, which is just basically absolute brutal, intense, uh, but still swinging like crazy. You know, I remember the first time I played uh, Bug Tracks live. It was just by coincidence at the end of a techno animal show, one of the last techno animal shows we ever did. We had some spare time, and I said, "Hey, Just, do you mind? I just." chuck these on to see how they sound over a rig and straight away you saw all the the dudes sort of start in black start to sort of disappear and their girlfriends move forward and there was like three women jumping up on stage in front of our mixer dancing their asses off and we're just like wow what the fuck is going on here man it's like this is unusual because you got to remember god flesh techno animal part of the reason we jacked techno animal in the end was it just seemed so predictable and boring the audience you know white male dressed in black wanting just to have their ears like mashed you know and and for for me it was a revelation just seeing instantly on that night the reaction to the few tunes i dropped and there is something about dancehall rhythms that connects to women's hips you know i did the swing the swing and the syncopation it was just a case of wow okay so with Techno Animal 2, for us it was a sort of revelation when we first toured with Techno Animal, uh, with Four Sync. Uh, we toured, I think Justin talked about, I heard him talk yeah. about it in his interview. It was like, what the fuck, man? It's like we're playing through these massive rigs with huge bass bins. This is like our dream come true because our tracks were all about bass, but we were having to play in shitty venues with shitty rock rigs, you know? And this was like impact, you know? And also just to see people dance their asses off to this shit you know it was like this is 
part of what we wanted, you know? It's not about limiting anything. Like in terms with Techno Animal and the bug, I've never been interested in limiting my audience uh, in terms of uh, demographic or in terms of reaction. It's, it's, I want as many people as possible to hear the bug. And we felt the same way about Techno Animal. You know, it was never meant to be ghettoized. Right. It's interesting that what you said about Scud. Was that his mm. name? Because mm. I was going to ask, like, with pressure, I was like, it's maybe hard for, for an artist to say this about their own stuff, but. Were you kind of looking around, being like, "Oh, I think I'm kind of doing something which is like out in my own little area," or did you feel like that? I mean, you've basically answered this question with the scud thing, but it seems like even in hindsight, and I obviously didn't live through any of this, but it definitely has that. Feels like it's standing out on its own somewhere. I just wonder, wonder whether you had that perception as it was happening or anything like that, or if you felt that yourself at all. Yeah, I mean. For sure, I think generally that always seems to be my chosen path. It's a lonely path, you know, in one way, but it's the only one I, I feel comfortable going down, you know, that I, I want to make music that I haven't heard elsewhere. That's actually a big criterion. It was a big criterion working with Techno Animal. Whenever we worked on something and it sounded like something else or reminded us too much of someone else, we'd, we'd drop it and, and restart, you know. I think um, with the bug stuff, in particular, there was a track called Killer. And, you know, tip of the hat to the Roots man who linked me with a lot of the vocalists. He gave me the acapellas for a lot of the, the early Razor X stuff to, to rework. And he linked me up with Daddy Freddy in the first place, you know. And, and he was very crucial. He came from punk, but he made reggae and he was based in Yorkshire, you know. He made proper reggae, you know. And he, but he empathized. He knew I was trying to do something different, and he knew it had that that sort of post-punk uh, meltdown effect, you know. And it was quite funny with the bug. You know, I started the bug partly out of fear because I knew Justin was too busy with Godflesh, and I had to do something on my own. You know, I couldn't keep waiting around for him. And I'd fallen in love with sound system culture, and I'd inherited a sound system through basically jacking it from a, a, a major label. You know that. I found a way to, to get them to pay for a sound system and walk from the deal with a sound system, you know? And then I was like, how, what music can I make? All the music I'd made before then was very mid-range orientated. What music can I make that's going to sound good on a rig, you know, that's singular and me and no one else? And I want to do something that no one else has done. Uh, uh, going back to the first God album, there was a track on there called Soulfire, which was inspired by Lee Perry, you know? Going back to the Ice Records we made, which were very inspired by Pill. You know, a lot of the post-punk artists like um, Killing Joke, Public Image Limited, Joy Division even, they were all big reggae fans, and the, the, bass, line, the bass was the lead instrument, you know? So for, for me, it, it, with a lot of bass music in dance of course there was bass bass driven tracks but it never had enough intensity for me you know it it always felt too formulaic so for me with the bug it was like how do you invent your own formulas you know how, how, how do you how do you find a, a direction that no one's followed before and you know it's going to be difficult because of course you know the easy route is to follow the herd if you're the, the i remember there's a Werner herzog movie with about suicidal penguins or something where the whole herd goes one way and this crazy penguin walks on itself on the other way and Werner herzog is like well that penguin was never seen again you know that's why you should stick to the herd you know but actually the idea of of finding your own path is always going to be thankless in a lot of ways but 
weirdly with the bug stuff when i started a lot of people i never expected suddenly were gravitating towards it i mean apex signed me you know it's like that was like what the fuck man uh, i was meant to release the first bug stuff on a different label uh, Anne marie shields kevin shields sister's label and she was trying to learn her trade through warner brothers like i had basically winging it and suddenly I get an invite from from Richard's business partner, Grant, saying, look, uh, Aphex loves your, he's heard your your first single, which was with Daddy Freddy and Tiki Man, and um, we'd really like to put anything out that you do in that in that direction. And straight away I was like, whoa, this is weird. You know, I'm, being, I'm having Aphex knock on my door. And suddenly it would be like Massive Attack, Tom York. I remember sitting next to Grace Jones on a couch in a hotel, having her recite a killer acapella next to me you know just like pinch yourself I'm, I must have lost my mind what's going on you know but knowing that something must be being done right here to attract people I respect who are seemingly giving me respect in return I, I didn't set out to hook Aphex Twin I didn't set out to come into the consciousness of Grace Jones but suddenly they're they're showing love for something I'm involved in and do, you know, and it's, it's an amazing feeling. But at the same time, that when you have that thirst to continually reinvent yourself and find new paths all the time, it's, it, you put yourself under a certain amount of pressure and sometimes it's tough and, and I find it tough in myself, you know, um, but still all the more determined to, to be an individual in terms of, of what my output is. Because for me, if you make music that's individual, it should reflect you as a person, not uh, reflect a, a peer group that you're involved with or a, a fashionable trend. Speaking of fashionable trends, yeah. in the years between <laughs> Pressure and, <laughs> and uh, London Zoo, things like dubstep and grime are starting to take shape. In what context were you being exposed to this stuff? In clubs, were you buying records or? I was going to clubs all the time, of course, in London. What else are you going to do? Well, <laughs> well that's why I moved there, you know? It's like, so for me, firstly, obviously with, with Jungle and Drum and Bass Nights, I was going to the end and getting my head hammered by Andy C, you know? Then uh, Grime came along. I can't remember. Actually, I do remember. A, I'd fallen in love with grime in rough trade of all places when someone I walked in there and someone said hey you should check this white label and it was I Love You by Dizzy Rascal and I put it on in the headphones and just had my head blown straight away it's like this is incredible you know it's shocking because uh, it's got all elements that I dig it's got um, it's funky it's noisy it's fucking sci-fi it's um I'm not even sure I'm allowed to swear on this. I, I've, I've said to edit this, edit this maybe out. like half an hour oh, okay, ago. So. Okay. So basically, um, yeah, I Love You was a big moment hearing that for the first time in Rough Trade, which still is. And his first album, I still think, is a masterpiece, you know. But at the same time, I remember um, I'd been booked to do a bug show in Amsterdam. And I didn't know, but it was with Roll Deep. And it was their first ever European show, you know. Um, and just seeing them in action and just watching them before the, and after the show was sort of hilarious too because they were just like uh, kids in a sweet shop going mad in Amsterdam and just seeing how potent it was, you know, and seeing grime parties that I was going to, there was fights on stage, off stage, you know, I mean physical, not just on the mic, <laughs> you know, literally members of the audience would go and punch some MC in the face and then dudes would be jumping into the crowd it would madness you know like punk as fuck you know and and 
the, the, the productions were raw and dirty and DIY, but f like nothing I'd heard before in lots of ways. That hooked me indelibly, you know, and, and then Wiley's devil mixes, you know, devilish mixes were incredible. Uh, but at the same time, Code 9 had interviewed me. I, I can't remember the, the synchronicity of this, but Code 9 had interviewed me just after pressure for Accelerator magazine. And I'd never met Code Nine before. I was aware of him, you know. I'd, 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 he hadn't he hadn't really released much himself at that point, if if anything, actually. But I'd, I'd been aware of him through his writing and, and presence generally. And we got on really, really well, you know. And we talked for a long time after the interview. And he was at the end. He was like, "Come to this new club night that started called Forward," and it literally just started at Plastic People. I think it had one venue before then, but I went down to Forward, and, and there was there was like. 20 people there and that, that would be like Benga, Mala, Lofa uh, and their girlfriends and that'd be about it really you know there was just it was just starting you know and I could empathize with a lot of what they were trying to do but I'll be honest dubstep wasn't magnetizing me the scene as a group of people was amazing you know they were very welcoming to me who I'm a total stranger to these people you know and they were all quite they could have been very close with their Croydon thing, but I guess because they respected Code 9 because he had his regular dubstep shows on Pirate, they trusted him in bringing me to their their party, you know. And I used to go down there a lot because I was, I was living just around the corner, so Plastic People was actually like my office. It was not even my office, it was my escape space. I was having to live in my studio, so just to keep sane, my, my escape was going to Plastic People most nights, you know, and, and I would go regularly to Forward. And then during the friendship that happened with Steve, I remember at one point, I'm not sure exactly when, he was like, look, I love your tracks, but make some tunes at 140 and I'll play them on my show. I'll be honest, <laughs> which will be hilarious, particularly to resident advisors listeners. I never thought in my life of making a track at a tempo, you know, given tempo. It's like, what? Why would you, why would you make a track at a certain tempo? Because I wasn't interested in beat matching, you know, or, or seamless DJ sets. They, to me, a lot of times that was actually a bit boring, a bit passe, you know, no matter how skillful, you know. And actually, I started making the tunes at 140 BPM just so Steve would play them, you know, mm. uh, as a challenge to myself as well and to learn something new, you know. And like I said, for me, the connection to dubstep has always been one I've tried to avoid because I was doing this stuff before, really. You know, it's like... London Zoo was a continuation of the work I'd started with Pressure, you know. I, I didn't see it like a massive change or shift in direction. There were some tracks that were done at 140 BPM which would fit in DJ's boxes and in DJ's sets. I would lived in my own bubble making Pressure, you know. I didn't even think anyone else would play my tracks. I just wanted to make my own tracks because I wasn't hearing that sound anywhere else that I could play live, you know. I wasn't thinking of DJ sets, you know. And... To be honest, because I didn't come from DJ culture, I wasn't even that aware of technically that, of course, for a DJ to beat match, you have to have the tempos at the same the, the, the same um, BPM, you know, uh, for seamless um, DJing. So therefore, it made sense that now DJs were going to play my music that hadn't played the stuff before, you know. But, but um, you know, like a, a light inside my head just because it, it hadn't been my world, you know. So it was it was an eye opener for me to get involved with dubstep uh, producers and give them tunes I was finishing and seeing what happens, 
you know, Code 9 and, and Loafer ended up being my missionaries. <laughs> you know, they, they were the ones dropping the tunes because I wasn't getting the shows at that time. So I'd get a text from Code 9 saying, yo, I'd be reading it in my studio at 4 a.m. saying, yo, Kev, like, Poison Darts just destroyed 6,000 people at Sonar and just giggling about it, him giggling on the text and me laughing at the reaction thing. This is mad, you know? And then I'd start seeing it happen at DMZ, you know, after four, I think it would, I can't, I can't totally remember, but basically the transition from forward to DMZ, Lofer and Code 9 were dropping my tunes and I was watching the reaction and just stunned, you know, and, and very obviously happy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to see people show a positive reception to something you work on in isolation, mm. you know. And so would you be aware of a track like Skang being an insane banger before you send it out to people? No, not just, at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I'm, chance and chaos plays a large part in my life, okay? And it's not always pragmatic decision-making. It's just like, like my conversation with you is tangential things just fall into place you will them into place in a lot of ways you know but with skeng for a start when i worked on the on on the tune the rhythm uh it felt special to me of course I'd, otherwise i wouldn't have kept working on it but when flodan came to the studio the night it was recorded he brought killer p along and i didn't know killer very well and it was to record on a different track we recorded the first track and we'd finished work on it about 3 or 4 a.m., I think, maybe 4 a.m., something like that. And Flodan just wanted to, to take off afterwards. But Killer was buzzing after the first track and he was like, yo, what else you got? And I said, well, I'm just finishing this beat, which is sort of sick. I, I, I dig it, man. <laughs> and he was saying, put it on, put it on. And I put it on and Flodan was like, no, I ain't feeling this shit. You know, let's go, let's go. <laughs> to, Famous to, last words. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he was not feeling it. And it was due to Killer very much saying, no, let's stay, let's have a go at this. And Flodan was sort of, I mean, an iron about it, but in the end decided to stay. Then we took a few cracks at it. And I can't remember who, who which, which MC did the vocal first. I think it was Killer that started it, actually. Um, and then Flodan started doing his his, his known phrasing and... and, and um, flow <laughs> and uh i said nah do it half speed do, do it like a chant you know and that's what became his growling skeng repetitions you know and i just remember through a lot of recording of that song we were just on our backs laughing at the lines they were writing them as it as they were spitting them more or less you know and it was done off the top of their domes. I don't know how much they'd written before of the lines that were included. Obviously, some of uh, Killer's delivery harkens back to classic dancehall uh, lyric lyricism, Ninja Man. Um, but the lyrics were incredible, you know? I, I couldn't believe they were just dropping these lyrics one by one, you know, that w were so dark in one way, but sort of the darkly funny in another way. It, it's the sort of lyrics that Nick Cave would get or Bob Dylan would receive uh, accolades for. But because these are urban rappers, you know, I remember getting a lot of shit on Dubstep Forum for releasing it because people said I was glorifying violence. And there's always this bullshit about how grime glorifies violence, you know. What's not seemingly allowed is for young black men to be given the kudos for being incredibly literate and incredibly 
succinct storytellers, you know, and to do it with flair. And that's what they did with Skeng. You know, I, I'm still blown away by the lyrics to Skeng, you know, literally. Well, it's interesting because, um, like, if it wasn't clear, and it's probably not, but this is the period when, um, like, Skeng's on London Zoo, for instance. I think there was another track on it. It's the Space Ape one, Fuckers. The lyrics on that one are awesome. And they also seem to, like, really play into the narrative that you built around London Zoo. And so I was wondering how much direction is there when you have like a thematic idea for an album when you're working with MCs like this or how much of there is this kind of strange like symbiotic like just like this situation where you just described doesn't sound uh, calculated for instance yeah no no I didn't I didn't direct Skeng lyrically they 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 decided what they wanted to spit but I knew it fitted and what you've, you've got to remember there was a lot of tracks that didn't end up on London Zoo so for me there was a, a narrative I wanted the album to have that came through selecting what would be finally on the album. Certain, different MCs, different situations, different cases. In some cases, like Ricky Rankin, I helped with the lyrics. Um, in other cases, like Tipper Irie, I suggested to him, I wanted him to write a track about what makes him vexed on a daily basis. Uh, what winds him up about living in London and he came in with Hangry um, so yeah I definitely obviously you know decided the shape the mood the story of the album but in Skeng's case they came with their own subject matter but I knew it fitted what I wanted for the album you know it's a case by case scenario but I knew what I wanted from London Zoo before I even worked on it you know the album took three three and a half years to make something like that you know and I just knew that uh, I wanted it to reflect what I saw as my view of London you know and how I felt in London positive or negative it, I wanted it to be a collision and 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 have friction but also have a beauty to it you know because i think london has all that you know uh, i loved it and i hated it as a city and i wanted those emotions to to shine through on the record you know uh, there's certain tracks that are spoken about all the time on the record we're talking about them now like skeng or poison dart they weren't my favorite tracks actually on the album my favorite tracks are never talked about like something like uh the Ricky Rankin track on there. Oh, fuck, this is embarrassing. I can't even remember the title of it. Yeah, okay, it's not Murder We and it's not Judgment. It's the it's the dancehall one. For me, it was like, this is some mental mixture of Orteca and Steely and Cleavy, you know, to dancehall. And I was really proud of it and I'd worked really hard to do something different, but no one talks about that track. You realise, and what I've realised more and more is you don't decide what's a classic track, you know? It, it's the same, it's, it's a process of craft that you do to construct a piece of music the people that decide if a track resonates are an audience and i went from god where i actively despised people in an audience to now relishing seeing an audience go mental to my tracks you know i'm not interested and haven't been for many many years in emptying venues but there was a time i was you know but as far as i'm concerned I've realized that whatever my preference is in my output has little to consequence to anyone but myself. The, 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 the reaction to a song is very much with an audience, you know. Was your living condition in ha like improved no. afterwards? I didn't get any money from London Zoo, man. Right. You know, that's the irony. 
You know, if London and Zoo had come out 10 years before and had the impact it had, uh, I would have probably had a big benefit. You know, hearing how 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 um, records by Wiley were being sold off the back of cars in, in thousands, God, I wish I'd had that sort of access, you know. I didn't benefit from it. I was living in my studio until I left London, you know. My studio was a shithole without a shower and without a, a kitchen, you know. I had to join a gym in order to, to shower. I had to eat out all the time because there was no facilities to eat in. I was broke. <laughs> and still, my security, the irony is, some people seem to find this... Uh, Imagine because you have a a big tune or what's seen as a big tune, you're minted, you know. I wish, you know. For me, Skeng was only pressed once on Hyperdub. It, it wasn't released on Ninja because Ninja didn't feel it had, quote, commercial potential, <laughs> uh, which was a big discussion at the time. All it's helped, really, ultimately, is give me a reputation that people will consider booking me for shows, you know, that's how it's held. That's the way it is nowadays, right? It's Absolutely. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's all flipped. You know, I, we talk, I talk about this all the time it, it, with virtually everyone in music these days. You know, you may as well give away your music as people like Run the Jewels and Death Grips have in the past, you know, to get attention, to get shows and hope that the quality of what you give away will get you the shows, you know, because it's hard to get people to put their money in their pockets but I understand that too. You look at the prices of records, 20 euros, 30 euros for an album. It's a lot of cash to shell out for, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult time as a, as, as a, as a musician now because, of course, I've always valued live shows anyway. I still love the live environment. That, it's like a, a, a gladiatorial arena for me. Obviously, as a studio obsessive, in my space capsule, I would wish the time spent would would receive income <laughs> that would feel me allow me to feel safe in paying my rent, and it doesn't because I've chosen a path which you've discussed earlier, which isn't genre based. I'm trying to be uh, for artistic integrity you know which means you lose the security you know if if I made straight dubstep i could play a straight dubstep session a dubstep audience wants dubstep music to be played in a dubstep way that's not how i play my live shows my sh live shows are like a series of explosions they're not really a about a, a, a linear horizontal experience you know and that's not to knock like you look at DJs like Youngster or Hatcher, how they DJ, they're masters at what they do, you know? And like earlier when I was talking about seamless DJing, I'm not anti-seamless DJing at all. There's artistry involved in that too, you know? Of course, incredible. But it's just not my chosen way, you know? The same way I, I've seen... I remember seeing Alec Empire play a show after the Beastie Boys, literally having waves of glasses thrown at him just playing this series like warfare weapons at the crowd and I just loved it you know or seeing Shaka or Abishanti halfway through a record pick the needle up pull it back say a few words and then put the needle back on I don't mind about the context 
what I mind is about the the the, the emotional impact and the, the the creative impact and and the the freshness that's that's I'm a witness to when I go to see a DJ session. You know, um, my chosen style of playing live is one that I've developed over time that makes me feel it's an original individual presentation of what I do. But that makes life harder, as I said. You know, and going back to your original question about money and, 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 and benefiting, it's like um, I'm still extremely fortunate to be able to pay my rent from music. So many friends and much more talented technically uh, speaking producers or musicians have either had to jack it, give in or just lost confidence or faith in the whole industry. So I, I'm fortunate that I can still do what I love and sometimes get paid for it, you know, and that, that makes me a happy person, you know. Um, that sounds banal. It's not meant banal. It just means that wow I'm, I'm glad people appreciate something that i've done or or my presentation but i know it's tough you know it hasn't got any easier with or without london zoo and i know that um as i said if i was doing if i was part of a metal band you have a fixed metal circuit if you're a, a reggae dj you can play the reggae festivals there isn't a bug circuit you know there's it's an army of one <laughs> Maybe the repress will make you millions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish. I wish.